0: What's going on, everyone? This is Zach Sundin, executive producer of the Darwinian Diva, back again with the (laughs) Diva. And who? about this week's episode where we have Amanda DeSantis coming on. We're really excited about that, but before we get to Amanda, we wanted to go over sort of a preface about what this episode is going to be all about. And a little bit of an update for you all about what we've been doing, what's been going on a little bit of our lives in the COVID pandemic, some things like that. And so, here is The Diva.
1: Hello again. Yeah, so this is quite a different sort of setup than uh, the last few episodes. And like Zach mentioned, we want to just give you an update. And um, I am not... I don't have access to all of the the technical things that Zach and Hamuda um, have, but uh, we wanted to share, you know, just how excited we are with the viewership and the continued following that we have. We are super excited about that. Um, I'm not sure if you have anything to share from your end, any details that might
0: be yeah. of interest so- to
1: <laughs> to a few people. <laughs>
0: I think for the few people who may care about that sort of stuff for our podcast growth is that we do keep growing each episode. We have increased in our views throughout or listens throughout all of our platforms where, for instance, you can find us Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, and uh, you can find us also through links from our Facebook page onto these things from Twitter And so we've slowly but steadily gotten more and more viewership as we've been going along, more followers. And otherwise, for things with us, yeah, things are definitely different than they were a couple months ago, like they are for everyone else, where we're doing uh, most of our interviews, including this one right now, over Zoom. And we're just using our standard microphones and mixers like we do in our usual office studio in our own homes. Like I'm sitting just right now in my bedroom, hanging out, set up on a desk. The diva's doing the same thing at home and we're able to still make this work, which is really cool for us that it's not just us stuck, you know, bored in the house, in the house, bored kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I don't think I'm ever bored in so, my house. Even good. before this.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, frankly, for me being a bit more of an introvert and in homebody, being stuck at home is not really stuck at home. Like this is where I would usually be anyway. So, I mean, I do miss going out and doing things for sure, but I mean, it's not too bad. Like you're saying, I'm never bored at home either.
1: Well, one of the things that um, I'm not sure how it impacted you guys, but for me, you know, and getting the podcast off off the ground, I was so excited. I'm still excited about the project and everything, but I was so excited to get it you know, going and we were recording uh, on campus and then having you guys, you know, coming in to knocking on my doors or I can run down to your office and bother you guys if I had any questions or, you know, ideas. Um, just for like a blip in time, I was frantic <laughs> well, you know, after COVID uh, came about because I was right. thinking, well, how are we ever going to get this off the ground and how are we going to move forward? And again, you know, I'm not complaining, um, but it was a little terrifying because finally we'd gotten to this point and then, you know, COVID hit.
0: Yeah, and we just um,
1: Yes. Yeah. And we hadn't even the released the first, completely. I know. And so I was thinking there's, uh, it's just not going to happen. So I am, very pleased and you know excited to be able to continue to do this um you know dig deep and <laughs> follow through with these with you know things that we set out to do so i mean things you know like you said we're having to do it through zoom and mm-hmm. you know improvise quite a bit but um at the same time you know the mission doesn't change and here we are
0: nope Yeah, it it definitely doesn't. And I think this is super fun to do even where you can each. So for the viewers, each week, we still have a meeting together. We meet on Wednesdays, typically sometime on a Wednesday or whenever, if we're busy with other things. And it's like, hey, we can still get to hang out together, talk about what type of plan we have for the pod, either this week, following weeks, who we want to have on all sorts of organizational stuff like that. And so it's really cool to keep some normalcy going even right. if it's not each other, you know, banging on each other's door saying, "Hey, what's going on with this? Do you like this? Do you not like this?" We still are able to make things happen and get feedback from each other. And the right. other thing that's been super cool like you're saying, Viviana, as like, okay, we weren't sure if we were going to get this off the ground, is we do really appreciate all of you guys' feedback that we've gotten from Facebook or from emails or however you've gotten a hold of us to say, hey, we really like this podcast. You You know, we didn't think, you know, that you guys would be as smooth getting this off the ground. Whatever it is, we like the topic. We think this is really important. You know, we really appreciate you guys actually sending us this stuff. So it's not just us throwing a message in a bottle out to Steve and it's like, Oh, there it goes. And uh, it's gone. And there's no response. No, you guys have been really cool making us feel like this is worthwhile in that we are doing something because on our end, it is a little nerve wracking from time to time to be like, okay, we're putting ourselves out there. We're trying something new. We are, you know, showcasing some different things and doing something that none of us had done before. And so it is really cool to actually get a response back. So thank you all for that.
1: Yeah, and and please keep doing that, sending emails and reaching out.
0: Yeah, and thinking on that with um, reaching out and all of that sort of stuff is uh, coming up pretty soon, we are going to do one of our mailbag episodes where I'm really wanting to tackle a few of evolutionary psychology's major misconceptions that people have with it. And so if you could please send in questions about topics that you would like us to clarify for you, some whether these are misconceptions, definitions, uh, qualms, classic problems, new problems... And we will do our best to explain any and all of these things, as many as we can really fit in, you know, an hour, an hour and a half.
1: Yeah. And on that note, um, you know, talking about people reaching out to us, we have our Amanda DeSantis is going to be on next. And uh, we were just super excited that she uh, reached out to us. and. um was you know inspired uh at one of the missions of our of the podcast which is you know to reinvigorate right the science community and um and we were very fortunate uh for her to reach out yeah. to us uh, yeah yep.
0: she she came on a, she reached out after which episode
1: uh, i'm not uh, i think it was actually the second episode and um yeah I yeah think so too. yeah and you know, it, it's just it's for that reason, or that's one of the reasons why we are doing this podcast, right? Um, we sort of you know got a pat on our back with her, um, you know, reaching out to us so that she could share her passion and her interest in um, sharing how important you know science has been to her in her academic career.
0: Yeah, I I thought like when you sent me the email saying hey this girl from Detroit Mercy has reached out saying that she listened to the podcast and thought it was really cool i was like whoa that's that's really cool for me as a graduate student hearing that another graduate student has found us and was reaching out in just interest like she was just like oh this is really cool you know i'm interested in this i'd love to be a part of the community with this I was pretty floored frankly I was so excited just being like oh wow okay so maybe it is just this one person but you know at least even if it's just one it's only one for now that's what I kept telling myself is this is one person for now and we can only keep growing from that one person
1: well I think the you know I think one of the bigger messages that I really appreciated with her was the, you know, the goal of outreach, right. And sharing with the community, like I said, her passion for science and then more, you know, specifically how evolutionary psychology has impacted her, her, her journey. And so, um, and I think the other thing that I really appreciated was that she yeah, as a graduate student. So, you know, um, I mentioned, I think in the introduction that one of my goals is, you know, to, um, you know, reinvigorate, you know, the, you know, the younger people and, and, um, encourage curiosity and, and so forth. And, um, uh, she spoke to it perfectly. She, you know, it, it was a perfect example of why this, you know, we're doing this podcast.
0: Yeah, I think so and I think for Amanda it's really important to showcase her as someone who is involved in clinical psychology which is a field that evolutionary psychology is really starting to grow into but is still very small and I think it it's really cool to see the kind of the outreach of it like roots coming out of the tree slowly Right. Going through the soil, and it's like, oh, it's found a new spot and it's coming up with a new shoot coming out. And it's like, that's really cool. And so I thought that was really interesting with her talking about that. And you all will hear in the interview, she brings up uh Dr. Randy Nessie, who is uh someone who teaches and is involved with Darwinian medicine, which is the application of Darwin's theory of natural selection on the study of medicine. This isn't some wacky specialized type of medicine per se. It's just applying what we know about evolution onto what we've already known about medicine and how can we apply these theories into areas such as psychiatry or other forms of medicine. So I think it's really cool to see how she talks about that sort of thing because that's what I'm interested in moving forward where I want to become a physician. So it was interesting hearing her bring up Nessie to talk about that of like, Oh yeah. So he brought evolutionary psychology into medicine and she's interested in putting this more into clinical psychology. And so I thought that was very cool. That was a big highlight for me of the upcoming interview that you guys are going to hear. Yeah.
1: And one of the things that reminded me of when, you know, again, hearing her excitement uh, was that in before, usually before I teach a course, I, you know, think about, okay, I just need one person to listen to me, one person to make eye contact with me, one person to think about, you know, the things that we're talking about in class and, you know, think about it critically and, you know, maybe think outside the box. And while it might be, you know, meager one person. I feel like you know, in order to you know reach our goals of reinvigorating and pushing science and evolutionary psychology, specifically, um, you know, it just takes one person, right? And my hope is that that one person will share it with another, and so forth, and you know, soon everyone will be on board, <laughs> and yeah, we'll be I, better for it.
0: <laughs> I agree. i I think that's I think that's how it has to go, and. I think that's kind of how she found it. And I think most people find evolutionary psychology in ways, forms, and from people that they don't necessarily expect to get it from, just because it is so small and new. But like Amanda says, once you learn it and you understand it, you just can't drop it. It makes too much sense. It's, It's really hard once it's in your head of just, okay, this is... A new way of thinking this is a new lens of thinking again we're not trying to just put this all on you like you all have to think this way but we're telling you that once you start it's going to be very hard to stop
1: yeah well and i think the other sort of attractiveness about applying principles of evolutionary theory to you know I mean, in our case, you know, we're interested in psychology, your case you're going, you're interested in psychology and you're going into medicine, but it's, it's wide use, you know, it's utility is very, um, you know, um, I mean, you can use it in any area, right? So in economics and uh, business. Yeah. And so, um, and I think that's part of the attractiveness and why once you are exposed to it and, you know, you understand understand it you can apply it to i mean just everything and i don't know for me it's sort of um oh yeah yeah it's comforting you know because it's grounded in science right uh so it you know it's in some ways concrete you know
0: that makes a ton of sense and so with that is there anything else you want to tell anyone before getting into the actual interview
1: uh and i you just think you
0: want to dive, have us dive in
1: i think well i i'd just like to say three little things be curious stay engaged and join us on the next episode of the darwinian diva podcast okay greetings and welcome to the darwinian diva podcast i am your host viviana week shackleford evolutionary psychologist and science advocate Today we have Amanda DeSantis with us, a second year doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Detroit Mercy. I'm gonna tell you a little more about her. Amanda graduated from the College of Staten Island, CUNY with a BA in psychology and an MA in clinical psychology from Teachers College, Columbia University. Her clinical experience includes working with children traumatized after a natural disaster, working as a university rape crisis counselor, and working with patients in an integrated health program at Montefiore Hospital. Currently, Amanda works with individual patients and couples at the University of Detroit Mercy Psychology Clinic, where she also conducts psychological evaluations. In terms of research, Amanda is currently working on several projects. Her main areas of focus include sexual violence, trauma, evolutionary psychology, masculinity, jealousy, and anger. Amanda, thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to have you on our podcast.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Very good. I have to start out by saying your record, at least what I've seen, <laughs> is quite impressive for a second-year doctoral student. Um, please share some of your achievements with our audience that sort of, you know, have paved the way to where you are today.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, when I was getting my undergrad degree um, at CSI, which is in New York, where I'm from, um, I thought I would major in psychology and maybe be a school psychologist or do something, um, some sort of mentoring or counseling. I wasn't really sure. Um, I took, you know, Psych 100 and all of those courses and took social psychology and really fell in love with that. Um, And that's kind of how I got started with research. Um, And then I did some work on sexual violence and thought, okay, this is like where I'm going to go with it. Um, And then I took an evolutionary psychology course in my senior year, and that completely (laughs) ruined my plans um, because I completely fell in love with that. Um, and also just like through interning, I realized I really wanted to do clinical work.
1: Okay.
2: Um, working with people, especially those who have been traumatized has been really important work for me. It just, um, is some of the best stuff that I think I've been able to do. Um, it's really rewarding uh, to be able to work with people who kind of come in and are really upset and then they leave and they're, you know, mostly okay. Um, They can deal with some things and then you can give them tools to do even better than that. Um, So that kind of moved me into clinical psychology. I went to a teacher's college, which is at Columbia, um, and did some research and stuff there. Um, And then I became a rape crisis counselor, which was really great. Um, It's within the university. So I got to help students. Um, And then I got into a PhD program. And now a lot of The stuff that I do is actually pretty research oriented, despite being in a clinical program that is very clinically focused. Um, But a lot of what I've been able to do is in part because I know a professor from my undergrad who is an editor for um, your journal and asked me if I wanted to do some writing. And I said, sure, so I got to do that. Um, And weirdly enough, I'm in a clinical program where there are a couple of professors who are really interested in evolutionary psychology, so I've had a lot of opportunities to do research that I didn't think I would get to do in a clinical program, Um, and it's just really been helpful in that way because it just opens a lot of of doors to do conferences and stuff like that Um, because my interests are not super clinical, Um, so if that were the only option for research, I probably wouldn't um, be as involved as I am.
1: All right. Yeah, so as I mentioned, yes, quite impressive. <laughs> um so so you mentioned that you were introduced to evolutionary psychology and it sort of changed things for you. I also remember, I think the day that I was introduced to it and how it just yes, it kind of rocked my world as well. Um so so when exactly were you introduced and what how did it, you know, impact your thinking at that point?
2: Yeah, so it was on my last, um, my second to last semester in college. I had one more psychology elective to take, um, and the head of the department sent us an email saying that they had just added a new class last minute um, because we had a new faculty member who. Um, is an experimental psychologist, but focuses on evolutionary psychology. Um, And the name of the the course was Psychology of Human Evolution.
1: Oh, okay.
2: I did not know what that meant, (laughs) (laughs) but I've never heard of evolutionary psychology at that point. Um, But I did go to Catholic school for about 13 years and was never taught about evolution at all. Um, And I was interested in it and I had kind of just... um, left Catholicism and was really getting into like um, atheism and just thinking about things in a different way. Um, And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll just take this. You know, it sounds interesting. Maybe I'll learn something about evolution. Um, So we read Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene. Um, We also read a textbook by David Buss, obviously. Um, And I just remember thinking like this makes so much sense. And I don't I don't know why no one knows about this. Um, My other thought was like, why, why is this not something that I've ever heard of up until this point? I don't remember learning about it in Psych 100. I don't recall any of my professors ever talking about it. At that point in my college career, like I said, I was pretty much involved in a lot of um, gender and sex, sexual violence research. and was really working from a social psych Mm -hmm. perspective. Um, But what, the EP class made me really think about was sort of more, um, you know, we call them ultimate causes, but sort of more big picture um, and not so much just kind of what's happening in an everyday um, sort of way. So I remember my professor for that class actually describing it as a lens to look through, like everything else, rather than kind of just one field or one sect of psychology. Um, and I've kind of really latched on to that. but um, then it also sort of rocked my world in a way because I was like, how am I going to integrate this into the rest of my knowledge well, point, about psychology? You have, psychology? To, right?
1: you have yeah. to at
2: this point, once you learn about it. <laughs> yeah. Once you learn about it, there is no way to go back. That's right. something that I've talked to a lot of people about too. Um, and weirdly, uh, One of my professors who taught human and sexuality in my doctoral program in the summer last year did it from an evolutionary standpoint. Um, We read David Buss. And so it was it was very interesting because the way that I had originally learned about sex and gender was very much from a social psychology perspective. Um, And it just I think it just gives you so much more um, to be able to integrate all of that together. So that's been my experience anyway.
1: Way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it just adds on to what you've already learned and it kind of creates I think a clearer lens, right, for you to think about a lot of the topics that you mentioned, especially having to do with sexuality, gender and so forth. Um so you've published material, um you're a published author and you are just super engaged with with research um so would you mind sharing some of the research or, you know, the most exciting research that you've participated in and how evolutionary psychology has impacted the way you think about that topic?
2: Yeah. So I think, like I said, that that one class kind of changed my outlook um, on everything. So right. I started to look into how, how can I incorporate EP. Theory into my research interests, um, instead of kind of trying to fit my research interests into EP. I guess if that makes
1: right, sense. Right. Right.
2: Um, and one of the first things that I kind of got into because sexual violence was my main um, research interest was the literature on rape and um, evolutionary psychology. Which, um, if you've ever read Thornhill and Palmer's a book, uh, a natural history um, of rape. It's very fascinating. Very different than um, <clears throat> you know a lot of what is talked about in sexual violence mm-hmm. research, both um, I think within the field, but also you know from my my experience as a rape crisis counselor, a lot of what we were taught, as well as you know it's all about control and it has nothing to do with sex um, and a lot of of different things that has been sort of um, been done in the literature and and is where they were getting that from. And a lot of that is sort of social psychology and and all these other things. But I think by reading that and getting into that um, in an evolutionary perspective, I kind of gained what felt like another layer of what we were talking about. And it made a lot of sense to me. I mean, that book in particular is sort of outdated now, but there's been a lot more done since then. Um, So that was kind of one of the first things. And at the same time, you know, I'm looking for ways to explain how something so sinister as, as rape or sexual violence seems to permeate every culture, every part of the world. It's not, you know, just in Western culture. It's not just in one part um, of the world. And for me, EP was kind of the only way that could really fully explain that. Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and then, like I said, I've I've got some professors, um, one who's an experimental um, psychologist and another who's a developmental psychologist um, at my university who do research from an EP perspective. Um, so that's been super helpful in trying to, whenever I need resources, um, especially when I was working on some of the stuff that was published, um, which had to do with rape and had to do with um, why women choosing not to have children, there were times where I was like very lost and was like, I'm way in over my head here. Um, And to have two really awesome professors who were able to point me um, in the right direction was really helpful, um, especially because in my previous two experiences uh, at college and then getting my master's degree, there was a lot of pushback and a lot of uh, disgust really for EP. And so it was something I really didn't talk about, uh, being interested in or knowing much about because it was really looked down upon. Uh, so it's it's been really awesome to be in a place where um, it's accepted, but also is something that's kind of in a way taken for granted. Like yeah, this of course this approach makes sense and we should use it, um, which is very opposite from, from what I'm used to. But I think the best example of um, sort of integrating EP into my research interests is just thinking about you know proximate versus ultimate causes kind of what I was saying before because you know my research originally was very much focused on proximate causes things that just um you know like rape for example um and just people's not even personality traits so much but what they had learned through being socialized um what they learned from their parents and so now looking at more ultimate causes and you know What psychological mechanisms did we gain from our ancestors that, you know, go into how people view sex, and go into that. Um, So it's been very interesting. Uh, And in fact, all my projects so far uh, at school, so like aside from things I've published, theoretically take on an EP approach, but also include another approach, usually psychodynamic, because that's the theoretical nature of my program. Um, It's been really interesting to mix those two um, in particular because psychodynamic or, or psychoanalytic approaches think about unconscious drives or unconscious um, wishes and in some ways that's very much fits into EP because it too is unconscious not something we're you know thinking about um, and so it's been interesting to kind of mix the two and see what we can get
1: <laughs> so do you see um so in terms of evolutionary psychology and you know applying you know the theoretical sort of approach to understanding things like rape um and other uh, types of behaviors um do you see uh an evolutionary psychological perspective also influencing um how you um you know interact with victims of rape for example and so, you know how you yeah. like you know approach Crisis
2: situation? Yeah, I think I've actually had probably with most of the survivors of sexual violence that I've spoken to um, through working as a rape crisis counselor the idea of fight, flight, or freeze. um, Because many times women are really, um, and I'm saying women because I think, you know, the vast majority of um, survivors are women. um, And that's all that I, you know, personally have seen, but they, are very down on themselves, disappointed or upset or angry that they didn't do anything um, and that their response was to freeze. And so I've walked some of them through this idea that here are the responses that we have and we don't get to really choose which ones we use in the moment, but they're all for survival purposes and you did survive and that's what's important. Um, And that's really calmed a lot of people down to recognize that there's not something intrinsically wrong with them that it's you know one of different responses they could have used but for whatever reason that's the one that their you know brain was like this is this is what we're going to do today um and it got them through it and so it it is really difficult you know to have that conversation with people but from my experience it's been really helpful um, for them to hear that and to know that it's not, you know, not only is it not their fault, but it wasn't something that they, you know, could have controlled for, or could have, you know, you could always say, I'm going to fight if it happens to me, but yeah, you don't have any idea what you're going to do. Um, okay. You don't have any control over that, unfortunately. So.
1: Okay. So uh, a little bit ago, you mentioned that there was some pushback earlier on in your academic <laughs> career uh, with evolutionary psychology, not, not surprising. Um, so what, <laughs> Do you have any specific examples, or do you recall any moments where you know it was very clear that um, it was not acceptable or <laughs> at the moment?
2: I think I have two so two examples stick out to me. The first was uh, my undergrad research advisor who is a social psychologist. Um, was completely shocked <laughs> when I told him about taking my uh, EP class and really enjoying it um, he was like very much down on it I think mainly because he ran the sex and gender lab um, mm-hmm. and his whole kind of um, idea was well EP doesn't have an explanation for um, being gay or being transgender um, and that's something that I've heard from a lot of people um, because one of the biggest misconceptions is that you know people who from who don't study EP is that it's anti-feminist, um, that EP is saying women are weaker and need to, you know, submit to men, that anyone who's gay or identifies as transgender is deviant or unnatural. Um, and obviously, as you know, EP does not say any of those things. Um, it's not, you know, telling you how you need to live a life or or, or what's right or wrong. It's just kind of descriptive. Um, and yeah, so that that definitely was one thing that I was, because at the time I was just excited and was like, wow, look at this new thing I learned. Um, mm-hmm. And he was so against it that it was really shocking to me. Um, and then I also remember being a master's student and taking um, uh, whatever course it was, but my professor was going through the different theoretical backgrounds of psychology and he got onto evolutionary psychology and he was like, mm, we're going to really pay attention to that one. Um, and then other people had kind of um, joined in and were like, yeah, it doesn't explain this. It doesn't explain that. It's just, you know, for people who are, you know, right wing and they they just wanna, want men to control women and they don't like the LGBTQ community and all of this stuff that just got very... Um, political very quickly. Um, And there were some people, including myself, who kind of came to the defense of EP and pointed people to some research that um, might change their mind or that they may find interesting, Um, though I don't think it necessarily worked. But, you know, that's kind of two examples that I can think of. Um, But in general, I've had, since I've been a doctoral student, I will say that I've had very good conversations with most people, um, who've, who've actually, you know, listened, um, and been interested in it. And we've had, um, even if they don't necessarily agree, but have had much more civil conversations about it, um, which is great. Um, so that's been really awesome.
1: (laughs) I want to say that I'm shocked because it wasn't that long ago, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but I I, I guess I, I am kind of shocked, but I'm also glad to hear that your doctoral experience is, uh, you know, in bringing in evolutionary psychology and thinking about these really important topics. Um, it's been, yeah, more civil. <laughs> I mean, you know, part of what we do as scientists, I mean, you know, is have these kinds of conversations, you you know, and sort of leave emotions outside for a minute while we talk through these things. So I'm glad to hear that. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. And I know we touched on this um, um, topic a little bit, you know, and and how does evolutionary psychology and using its approach um, has impacted, you know, the way you think about research and, you know, your specific interests. So, I mean, you know, for the last 20, 30 years or so, we've had quite a number of people uh, sort of pushing this Darwinian medicine and, um, you know, applying explicitly evolutionary thinking to, um, you know, mental health disorders and so forth. So George Williams, Randy Nessie, he just had a book come out last year, Good Reasons for Mm -hmm. Feeling Bad, Andy Thompson. Um, There are also, you know, societies that again, making ex- explicit to use evolutionary theory in applied fields, such as, well, not limited to mental health, but also policymaking, business law, education, um, mm-hmm. so like Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society. Um, so this is sort of taking a step back, and uh, with your experience as a graduate student, and you're immersed in this, in this area, how do you think that the broader field of clinical psychology can benefit from um, an evolutionary perspective?
2: Yeah. So actually I just read uh, Brandy Nessie's book oh, okay, <laughs> probably good. a couple of weeks ago.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, one of my, I guess my main research advisor, um, if you want to call her that, because um, we work from a, a cohort model instead of a mentor model. So I don't actually have like a you know set research advisor, but she did give me that book because um, she thought I would be interested in it. And I was, and that was sort of the first time that I would really heard anybody apply, um, you know, sort of evolutionary psychology to um, being a clinician or working in the medical field. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've kind of just started to get into that, but I am very much interested in learning more about it. But I think, like I said before, it's funny because my program is so psychodynamic um, in nature and something that you always do as a psychoanalyst is look for deeper meanings. You look for unconscious drives um, and things in the person that you're seeing that they don't know necessarily about themselves. And to me, that fits perfectly with EP um, because I'm always thinking of kind of what is this bigger picture of where is this coming from? Um, What other things are at play here other than just what the person could be telling me? Um, And I think trauma is a good example of that. And I think that that's where um, evolutionary theory has been applied the most. Um, you know, like I was saying with the, the fight, flight or freeze, I think that's probably the best example. Um, but also in terms of avoidance and what we know about PTSD, um, just, you can see how beneficial it would be to avoid something or someone or some place you know, that's associated with a really negative event in our ancestral past because those people wouldn't have survived if they weren't continuously afraid of, you know, Lions, or whatever. Um, But now you see things like PTSD, which leads people to avoid, you know, places that they may need to go or people that they may need to see, Um, or something similar like, you know, they heard an explosion and that was really traumatic, and now they can't hear fireworks or other loud noises, and it really gets in the way of living um, a normal life. And those reactions that people have are very physical, they're very visceral. I mean, just listening to people tell you what their reactions to certain noises or sights or smells or whatever is. Um, it's almost like very scary. And I, for them, it's incredibly terrifying because sometimes they don't really know where it's coming from. Right. Um, I've heard people who um, have been raped say that their body will sometimes become really tense when they're trying to have consensual sex with a partner later on, and they feel terrible about it. And they feel like, why is this? Why am I doing this? I know this person's not, you know, the person who hurt me. I know that this is a different person, um, logically, and their body is responding in a way that they feel like they can't explain. Um, and then but we have treatments that are targeted because of our understanding of evolution that are targeted to help these people with these exact things. Um, exposure therapy is a great example. Um, you know, exposing someone to the places, the things, the sounds, whatever, that cause them anxiety so that over time they find those things less threatening. Um, so in some ways I think EP has already really benefited clinical psychology and our, our understanding um, of treatments and what we need to be doing, but like I said, the book by Randy Nessie that really was fantastic to read, um, and I had no idea that any of that existed, and so I'm once again glad <laughs> that I have so many professors who are interested um, in NEP and can point me in directions like that, um, so I can learn more and uh, you know be able to implement that myself, because I think um, one of the things that I took away from that book in particular is being able to talk to and explain to patients what's going on. That is so helpful. I think, you know, we call it like psychoeducation, right? Which like basically just means explaining to somebody kind of explaining anxiety to somebody like you, you know, run into this and you feel like that explaining anxiety to somebody like you, you know, run into this and you feel like that. You are depressed because this, this, and this. Um, And that is something, psychoeducation, that I'm particularly passionate about because I used to work with a population um, of very poor people in the Bronx um, who had, you know, comorbid medical conditions and um, depression and or anxiety. And a lot of the times they didn't know what was happening to them because they had physical symptoms that were really depression or anxiety, but they couldn't kind of connect it to their emotions. And so a lot of the work I had to do was explaining, you know, how emotions can affect the body and how the body can affect how you feel. Um, and it just, it really changes that person's perspective and their understanding of themselves. Right. And that just gives them back the control that they feel like they lost. And sometimes that that in and of itself is a treatment just to be able to be like, okay, I understand what's happening and now I can work to, to fix it. So.
1: So certainly sounds like, well, at least from your perspective, it has already impacted the field and there is, I mean, tons of room for growth and, you know, continuing yeah. to apply the, the, the field, um, you know, the, that line of thinking. Um, that's awesome. So um, what kinds of things um, do you recommend for uh, sort of do's and don'ts, right, that you may have learned along the (laughs) way (laughs) uh, that you might be able to tell other, you know, um, either aspiring graduate students or graduate students that might be interested in, you know, going the clinical route and applying evolutionary psychology to their studies? So like... Um, I know we connected and we talked about like um, the Human Behavior and Evolution Society that we had to cancel because Mm -hmm. of coronavirus. Um, But that might be one way, right, to, um, you know, network and things like that. But do you have any specific sort of uh, do's and don'ts (laughs) or strategies that you could offer?
2: Well, I think definitely when it comes to wanting to apply EP to your clinical work, you're kind of, you are sort of narrowing yourself down to probably a handful of programs. Um, And so trying to think about how important it is for you to have, um, you know, EP be part of your, not, not really your clinical work so much, but your research work. Um, mm-hmm. cause clinically different programs are going to have different, um, theoretical backgrounds, which they're pretty upfront about. Um, I kind of, I don't even know how I found UDM. Um, but <laughs> I did, I did know that before I came here, I did know that, um, there were two professors, um, who were really interested in EP. And that kind of was a big selling point for me um, along with the fact that we don't have a mentor model, um, which means that I, you know, don't have to necessarily be stuck with one um, research advisor and I can kind of go around and do, do whatever um, different research that I want with different professors um, is sort of important to me too, based on horror stories that I've heard. But anyway, (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, so I think, you know, trying to, look at different programs and what, what they're saying about their orientation and what their individual professors are saying about what they're interested in and what background they sort of work from. Um, And then I think too, it's sort of interesting the route that I took because I was very strong in my conviction. I was going to go into social psychology until I was basically graduating. Um, And then EP kind of, flipped everything over for me. Um, And at the same time, interning with children um, who'd been through a hurricane and learning about trauma and working with kids who were traumatized, that also was like a point for me where I was like, okay, I can't do social psychology. I really need to, I need to be a clinical psychologist. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the advice that I'm trying to give is to take time to learn about yourself and what you want And to not just kind of latch on to one thing, but to really explore, um, because you're going to end up finding something that maybe you like a whole lot better than what you were doing previously. Um, The other big thing I have for people who want to be clinical psychologists is to go to therapy, learn what it's like to be on the other side. It makes you a better therapist. It makes you understand and have a lot of empathy for being a patient or a client. Um, find research topics that you're passionate about. You know, don't just think you're going to do research on depression or just just one thing that you know you don't really have any kind of plan. Uh, because if you're not passionate about it, it's never going to get done.
1: <laughs> There's um, no planning. There's no planning. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and seek out faculty that you can work with professionally, but also that you can look up to as a mentor. Um, because you don't realize it when you start graduate school, but you really are going to need someone to kind of help guide you in some direction because it's, you know, imposter syndrome is real. And you're <laughs> going to have a lot of times where you feel like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. I don't belong here. Um, so sometimes you need someone to sit you down and be like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> right,
1: right. I think, I think um, we all, we all need that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, And I think the last thing is to really take care of yourself, you know, take a day off during the week, spend time with your significant other, your family, your friends, your pets who love you unconditionally. Um, (laughs) Carve out time for your personal interests that are unrelated to psychology. Do not eat, breathe, sleep psychology because it will drive you insane. Um, We talk so much about self-care in graduate school. But no one is going to tell you what you need to do for you. And that's something you have to figure out. And the sooner you can do that, the better it is because you cannot neglect your self-care because you will go crazy. And you'll you just won't have the effort or the motivation to do anything anymore. And then, you know, it doesn't, it's like you're working all the time, but you're not getting anywhere. So it's better to take the day off and just like take your dog on a walk and live your life. <laughs> So that's something we talk about all the time, but it's it kind of gets lost in translation. Right. But
1: Yeah. And it's hard to, to practice that sometimes when you're in the throes or you're having a good working streak or something, yeah. <laughs> right? You yes. don't want to put the pencil down or stop typing or whatever it may be. Okay. So you are super, super busy and super, super productive. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we just talked about you know um you know exploring and keeping possibilities open but on the other hand you you got to have some sort of loose plans and some loose yeah. goals right <laughs> and so looking ahead um what are some of your professional goals at least for now and i know that yeah. might change yeah, yeah, but yeah. what are you thinking right now
2: so as of right now so right so at this moment i guess i should say that um i work with Uh, individuals in psychotherapy, but I also work with couples. Um, So that's kind of where the majority of my experiences, I've had some experiences with children um, and then being a crisis counselor, which is not technically clinical work uh, as much as it's volunteer work. But um, so that's kind of all the experiences that I've had. I've always had a big interest in doing forensic work, um, in particular working with individuals who are incompetent to stand trial or have been deemed um, criminally insane. Um, So in a lot of ways, that's kind of the route that I've always been interested in, not set in stone, haven't done any of it yet. So, (laughs) you know, it would be nice, but we'll see. Um, If not that, I also, my other big interest is in health psychology. Um, Mm -hmm. So starting in September, I'll be working at Detroit Receiving Hospital, doing regular outpatient psychotherapy, but then also working with um, patients in the um, trauma and uh, specifically burn unit. Um, so that kind of mixes a lot of my interests together because I do get to still do trauma work, even though it's, um, you know, different obviously than psychological trauma, but that kind of goes hand in hand with, um, you know, physical types of trauma. Um, but basically I see a big chunk of my time being devoted to clinical work, though. I never intend to give up, you know, doing research. I doubt that I'll ever be a professor cause I don't, Love teaching, but uh, so I'll either be doing research in my own time um, or for a hospital, you know, because that is also a possibility. Mm -hmm. Um, I know some of the practicum positions, which is sort of the step before internship um, for clinical students, does include some aspect of being able to do research because a lot of places do collect. information about their patients and have them take different measures to see how they're doing. Um, you know, cause that's, that's a good way, a standardized way to, to track changes, um, and to make sure that the treatments we're implementing are actually, um, benefiting people. So, um, I'd be interested in doing that kind of work. Um, but for EP, it's probably going to be a lot of me working on my own time, which is essentially what I do now anyway. Um, and you know, just, just, Chipping away at kind of a lot of the sexual violence stuff um, because there's still so much that we don't know about it. um, So, yeah, those are my loose my loose plans.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, they sound awesome. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for being on the Darwin and Diva podcast. I know that life is quite crazy right now for many people, (laughs) so I really appreciate you coming on and sharing some of your experiences. Um, And um, I. I don't know. I wholeheartedly feel like you've inspired someone today. So I think, you know, I kudos to you for persisting with applying evolutionary psychology to, you know, your thinking, whether you use it in, you know, clinical psychology or not, or in practice. Um, but it certainly sounds like it's, you know, been beneficial, uh, you know, to your thinking and uh, to the broader area. So um know, again, congratulations on your persistence (laughs) with that. And um, just thank you. Thank you for being here.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great.
1: Okay. So if um, we have interested audience members who want to contact you or to, um, you know, reach out for some more inspiration or guidance from you, how should they um, contact you?
2: So probably the best form of communication is going to be my email, um, which is D E S A N T A J at udmercy.edu. Um, if you want to post that anywhere, feel okay. free to do that. Cause it's sort of a, a weird, you know, email address. Uh, I do have a Twitter that I only use, um, you know, for EP stuff, or I guess I should say more like science stuff. Okay. And it's just my first name, my last name, and then seven. Um, and then if anyone's interested in, you know, following my research and what's going on, I do have a research gate, which again, is just my name. Um, so you you can find me on there.
1: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. A big thank you to you guys for listening today. Please continue to send in your questions and comments. We really like receiving them. And remember, be curious, stay engaged and join us next time on the Darwinian Diva podcast.